Welcome back to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of technology, business, and media in Asia. I am your host, Carol, and we have an old friend of the show today who has probably been on the show almost more times than I have because I'm, you know, a new host to the podcast. And his name is Charles Anderson. He is the founder of Charles Anderson and Associates. And he is also the host of the Tech Burst Asia podcast, among a multitude of other titles that he holds. So welcome back to Analyze Asia, Charles. Thanks, Carol. It's great to be here. You might not know this, actually. This is the first time that we've spoken on the show, but it's definitely not the first time that I've heard your voice. Actually, I've edited quite a few of the episodes that you've been on and the one where you hosted as well. And I must say that you're definitely one of my favorite guests to edit. Oh, why is that? <laughs> because you're very eloquent and because you're very eloquent and very clear spoken. So I'm really glad that we have you back again. So what have you been up to since you last appeared on Analyze Asia? Well, lately I've been doing a lot of research into smart cities still, but more just having fun with it. So I have this thing where if I see some big numbers or some big forecast or ranking, I like to dissect it and see if it actually makes sense. So I've been out speaking at a couple of events. I was just at Bosch Connected World in Berlin talking about this, but this was actually before everything really hit the fan with coronavirus. So I luckily got in and back here in time. You talked about rankings and we know that you've recently actually wrote an article about smart city rankings, but you also talked about how these rankings do not reflect reality. Can you talk about why that's the case? Yeah, this has kind of been a fun one for me. I, I don't think I'm going to be getting many Christmas cards this year from certain ranking organizations. If you go back, maybe, and I think it was October 2019, there was a survey or ranking that came out. It was a combination from IMD in Switzerland and Singapore University of Technology and Design, so SUTD. And they ranked out the top cities and they ranked over 100 of them in total. And, you know, as you'd expect, Singapore comes out on top. But then I noticed it was Zurich, Oslo, and Geneva. So three of the top four were actually from the countries where the, pe- the survey people were at. So I decided to look into it a bit more and understand how those compared to other surveys. And when I looked into it, what I realized was the IMD and SUTD survey, it wasn't actually quantitative. They randomly surveyed 120 citizens per city. That raised a big red flag for me because I don't like subjective surveys. I like things to be very quant-based. So then I decided to look at some of the other major surveys that come out. And last year, you had three other ones that came out of the rankings that actually ranked over 100 different cities. So you had one from ESA in Spain, another one from Easy Park. And Easy Park is an organization out of the Nordic region that runs all the parking schemes there and in Germany. And the other one was AT Kearney. Now, those were all much more quantitative based. So I thought, well, at least those should line up. And then I decided, okay, I'll just look at the top 10 and see if there's any consistency across it. And what I found was Singapore came across relatively well in all of them. They ranked number one, but they were in the top 10 in the other three surveys as well. That was the end of the consistency. (laughs) When I started looking at some of the other cities, it just went all over the place and I started pulling my hair out. So I'll give you a couple of highlights on this. So like in IMD, Auckland ranks as number six. But in the Easy Park survey, they rank it as number 58. Bilbao was the craziest one because Bilbao ranks number nine in IMD, 
which means the guy who runs the smart city is probably going to his boss saying, give me a promotion. And that mayor is going to say, no, you're fired because ESA ranked at number 107. I mean, no matter which one you look at, even if it's all quant based, it's all over. ESA comes out, ranks London as number one, but Easy Park ranks it as number 50. IMD ranks New York as number 38. AT County ranks it as number one. And I really just started losing it over this because it was so confusing. And I ended up going through all those top 100 cities and it doesn't get any better the farther you go down. So fortunately, I think if you really want to find out how crazy these surveys and rankings are, you can go check it out. It's online. It's on my website and I've got it on LinkedIn as well. But it did get a lot of hits, especially from the people who do these rankings, um, which I'm kind of nervous about because I know I have to have some meetings with one of them pretty soon. And I'm sure they're going to remind me that, by the way, you hammered our ranking. I'm like, well, yes, but you published it, so you have to be prepared. Well, you probably hammered all of their rankings equally, you know, so it's like they all got their own biases and you just got to pick your, pick your favorite, I guess, when you, you know, reference or use these rankings for your work. Yeah. It was easy to hammer all of them, but then what we, I sort of did, someone said, why don't you create your own ranking? And so I did out of a whim, I basically took all the cities that were ranked in each of them. So there was 44 of those. And I just averaged the score, which means in theory, mine's probably the most accurate. I mean, we called it the Charles Reed Anderson Perfect Smart City Ranking or the Crap Smart City Ranking for short. Can um, we find that on your website? Oh, it's, it's on there. Yeah, it's in that same article. <laughs> and what and is your thing, website? The website is charlesreedanderson.com. Perfect. <laughs> and it's easy to find the article. It's called Lies, Damn Lies, and Smart City Rankings. So, Great title. Uh, like I said, I'm not getting I'm not getting a lot of Christmas cards from those people. Sure. <laughs> so today we're here to talk about a new initiative of yours that is Spark Labs Connects, and you recently announced this new initiative with the Spark Labs Group. But before we dive deep into the initiative, can you first briefly tell our listeners a little bit more about Spark Labs? Sure. Spark Labs is an accelerator and VC fund. They have nine accelerators globally, and they've been around since about 2013. One of the things they're most famous for is they hold the world's largest demo day up in Korea, where they get about 3,500 people. But they do some interesting programs globally. So they do fintech with Ping An in China. They do an ag tech accelerator in Australia that's backed by the New South Wales government. They do a frontier tech with Arizona State, and ASU is ranked as the number one innovation university in the U.S. And they've also recently launched a company called Foundry, which is an innovation of a service platform, and they're partnering with uh, SRI International, so Stanford Research Institute. So it's really well-rounded. It's not the biggest one, but it's definitely one of the better ones in the industry. It's one of the highest follow-on rates for follow-on funding. So it's, you know, it's really nice to be working with these guys. For sure. And so you're, you must be really excited about this new project, uh, Spark Labs Connect. So what kind of role will you be playing uh, in this project? Well, I'm going to be the managing partner for it. Um, but what I've been doing is working with the team from Spark Labs to come up with a concept that's slightly different from traditional accelerator model. I mean, first of all, when they approached me, my, my big worry was, you want to do another accelerator in Singapore? There's already <laughs> like 130 of them here right now. So how do you do something that's different? So we are going to be based in Singapore. We're going to focus on IoT, smart cities, and prop tech, but we're also going to invest globally. So the money doesn't have to be focused here. I don't even want all the companies to come here. But what we're doing that's very different is we're leveraging a lot of my network, and we've been signing up partnerships on the demand side of the ecosystem. And what I mean by that is we have technology vendors on board, enterprise customers, industry associations, and cities. 
And they're getting involved where they'll actually help us do proof of concepts, pilots, and it's really bringing together supply and demand to accelerate access to innovation. Like you said, there are already a lot of incubators and accelerators across different geographies, but very few have succeeded. Why do you think now this is the right time to start another one? I think if I was going to start another one that follows the traditional model, definitely Singapore wouldn't be the right place to do it right about now. But what we're doing is very different. And a lot of this goes back to the work that I do in my day job for Charles Reed Anderson Associates. I work across that ecosystem. And what we're realizing is we need more cross-ecosystem collaboration to drive innovation because there's no point if just the technology vendors work on something and then hopefully go push it out to the other side. We need to get supply and demand, sharing best practice, talking about what it takes to succeed. Really, it's important to start sharing your problem statements, your demand requirements, and just take a more collaborative approach. And that's very difficult because cities operate individually. They don't like sharing with other cities all the time. Technology vendors are very competitive. They want to own everything and they think they can do it all. So trying to get people who are like-minded together to really drive this cross-ecosystem collaboration, I think there is definitely an opportunity in a market for that. And you mentioned that Spark Lab Connects will focus on IoT, smart cities, prop tech. I know that you specialize in these industries, but why these sectors? Well, they're buzzwords, aren't they? I love buzzwords. <laughs> And if you've ever seen me present on stage, I always point out that they're just buzzwords. What we're using is technology to solve a problem. So, but we have to look at some major themes across the top. So that's the themes. But in general, if I say I'm going to invest in IoT, that could be anything. And it's so broad. And I can justify why almost anything that is connected can be considered an IoT device. What we're really going to be looking at is at specific market drivers. So I'll give you a few examples. Like we're going to look at sustainability and green regulations. I'm expecting Singapore to enact some more stringent regulations, that's going to have an impact on the investment side of the commercial real estate industry as well as the build. It's going to create a whole new set of opportunities around that. So that's good for prop tech. I work with a lot of the mobile operators and network equipment manufacturers. I will focus a lot on connectivity. I like the idea of helping operators resolve this challenge they face about how you're going to monetize these 5G networks. Now, we're going to spend a trillion dollars globally deploying these things. No one really knows the use cases right now about how we can make money out of it. And then there's other opportunities as well around eSIMs, vSIMs, and iSIMs. As people start decommissioning 2G and 3G networks, we'll look for more low-power solutions. And then, of course, across that, we'll focus on some of the enablers, analytics and AI, people who can take existing data and turn it into actionable intelligence. So it's really about focusing on market drivers, some of the key tech enablers, and use those underneath those buzzword banners of IoT, smart cities, and prop tech. So let's talk about the model for Spark Labs Connects. You mentioned a little bit earlier that you've been leveraging your own network and signing up with partners. Is this how it's going to work? for Spark Lab Connects, you know, with partners uh, in the ecosystem? I think that's crucial to have them actively engaged because first of all, if I'm going to be out there, you know, investing in about 15 companies a year, you know, up to 100K, it's good if I actually know what the market demand is. So I'll need to know what the technology vendors are doing, the mobile operators, and what city solutions they're looking for, and especially anything related to property and real estate. So that's the way the model is going to work. But What's really different is, you know, because I've been talking to a lot of my contacts for many years about this, when I brought up this concept of how we could do it differently, they really bought into it. And if you think about this, normally what an accelerator is going to do is invest in some widget or some solution or analytic solution. 
They're going to spend a few months trying to make it you know, ready to go, and then hopefully they can go out and sell it to the market. We're taking a very different approach. We're going to invest in companies that are ready to go to market now and leverage our ecosystem. And this is the real differentiator. Let's just say, for instance, I wanted to invest in something 5G related, like a security camera. Well, that's great, but I can go to one of our partners, Nokia, and ask them to test it. But then if Nokia likes it, they've got, what, a couple hundred mobile operator customers who might want to deploy it. But then they also have a very strong enterprise and public sector business, so they can take it to market. And if that's working well, I can take it up to True in Thailand. They can deploy it or leverage it across their holding company, which is CP Group, one of the world's largest conglomerates. So that's great because now I get mobile operators involved. But then I'll go and talk to somebody like Becca, who's a construction and engineering firm out of ANZ. And they're like, well, actually, we're in about 20 countries, so we'd have to negotiate a contract with operators in each country. It'd be a hassle. Don't worry. I'll go to our other partner, Skyroam, and I can ask them to put a visa or an eSIM in it. And that eSIM will allow these cameras to turn on locally in any country. You don't have to deal with the operator. Now that I have that capability, I can start leveraging our city partnerships. So we're working with Darwin in Australia, Taipei, Songdo in Korea. And then also we've got a partnership with the Urban Technology Alliance. And that gives us access to test labs, test beds across Spain, France, Taiwan, Japan, and Korea. And once all of that's done, we can go back to the global organization of smart cities, which all those guys are involved in. Any use case or case study that comes out, they share across another 325 cities and vendors. And it's really a one-to-many like one model. All this is meant is to really access innovation, increase how quickly we can take these things to market and to where the market demand is. So we've got the places where we can go deploy these proof of concepts, but we've also got a community that will be sharing the results of it with each other, which should hopefully drive everything forward. I understand the partnership idea, but I mean, a lot of accelerators, you know, have partnerships with vendors, companies. Why is this different? And why are all these vendors and companies that you've just mentioned interested in working with you or working with Spark Labs Connects? I think a lot of it has to do with trust. I mean, Spark Labs has a very good name in the industry for being trusted. But when I go to my contacts, and we've been talking about this stuff for a number of years, for a lot of them, I already helped them source innovation. So there is a lot of trust as part of this. I don't want this to be a list of 100 partners. I want it to be small, but I want it to be a very trusted relationship. And it's got to be about greater collaboration. Everybody we're signing up knows that they need to collaborate more. They understand that there might be some people in the room who could potentially be competitors in some ways, but they agreed that if we all work together, we can drive it better faster. And then when I mentioned that trust thing, you know, with Spark Labs, which interesting is they're actually ranked as one of the top 100 smart city partners in the world already today. And that was through Newsweek um, last year. And now we're really taking it to the next level. So there is that trust. We know the space, we've got contacts, and we've got a lot of solutions that can help it out. Now, I can't help but smile when you talk about rankings now. <laughs> If I were an entrepreneur listening to this podcast right now, try to win me over. Why should I work with Spark Labs Connects over all the other accelerators out there? Well, I think the first thing is a real simple one, which is we're not just going to give you money. We're bringing you market demand. So we're not just going to say, oh, we're going to let you and train you how to do marketing and build a business plan, explain to you how you should talk to your customers. I mean, we will help with that. But we have market demand. We have places for these companies to actually go and deploy their solutions, do pilots and proof of concepts. And our model isn't always to have them come up at demo day and ask for money. Since a lot of these are B2B, 
I'd love it if they can actually start generating revenues and maybe not need to follow on funding right away and be cash flow positive. So that's part of it. The other thing is, you know, it is a trusted model. Spark Labs already has one of the highest follow on funding rates in the industry. And also what I like about it is we're going global with this. But Spark Labs started global. A lot of the co-founders were actually living in the U.S., but they started the program in Korea. And they do have programs in Oman, Australia, China. They're really in Taipei as well. They've had a great program up there. So they've done a really good job of broadening it out. I think one of the final things on this one, and this was my own little um, initiative on it. So a few years ago, I was one of the co-founders of He for She in Singapore. And what I realized is if you look across accelerated programs globally, there's really not a high percentage um, of getting women involved. And so what we're actually targeting is 50% of the mentors to be women, which is great because we're reaching out to a whole new network on this globally. I've had a lot of calls today, even with Germany and the UK, bringing on some more mentors. And we're looking to bring in a diverse set of skills in that mentor base. Normally what you get is people who have more entrepreneurial skills or fundraising skills. We're looking across everything from industry, technical, operational, and regional expertise as well. So this pool of mentors we're going to have is going to be pretty unique, very diverse, and I'm focusing on all aspects of the types of needs that our investment companies would need. That sounds really good. So let's talk about what kind of mentees you're looking for. What are some of the traits of startup founders or startups that you're looking to invest in? Well, for the startups themselves, it's easy. I mean, they, we, we're not going to be really investing in ideas. We're going to need people who have solutions that are ready to go to market. We can help them make it better. We're not going to be in here helping them create something from scratch. We've got an ecosystem that's ready to deploy. So we want companies that actually can do that. Now, when you look at the people, it's going to be an interesting one. Obviously, you want people who are very passionate, but like what I tend to like is people who realize that it's not only about the technology. There's thousands of startups out there with great solutions. They're not succeeding. So why is that? Do these people understand what it takes to actually get to the next level and realize that I need to collaborate even internally, bring in the best brains I can and try and drive these things to market? And I really like people who understand the complexity of how difficult it is to succeed in this space. We're just trying to lead by example by showing how we're collaborating. We hope that the people we would bring in would be that open as well. So I guess like maybe one of the turnoffs would be if somebody thinks they know it all and think their technology is perfect and they're not willing to pivot and partner and really do what it takes to be successful. You know, they have to understand their limitations. This, you know, some of the biggest brands in the world have great IoT solution portfolios and they're struggling to make it work. So if they're struggling, it's going to be difficult for everybody else as well. You just launched this program, but we want to know where you see it evolve from here in the next, you know, two to three years. Well, obviously, I'd like it to be hugely successful. <laughs> tons of exits and yes, you know, but, but no, like realistically, I want to keep building on the ecosystem. So, you know, number one, I mean, I love for Singapore to become the hub for IoT smart cities and prop tech innovation. Singapore is already known for, you know, as a strong smart nation, but this is another thing it can do. It doesn't mean all the companies have to be based here. But if we're basically using this as the center of our ecosystem and we can become that hub, I think it's great for Singapore as well. On that ecosystem side, there is some other partnerships we will be signing up that we're in discussions with, which means we're going to look at a couple of universities. There is some other ecosystem and vendors that we're looking at and potentially some other smart city networks that we can add in to give us more demand side. So these meetings are going to be going on over the next couple of months, which will obviously keep me very busy. But it's fun because what I really like is when we go out there and talk to these people and I explain to them, this is why I think the market isn't moving as quickly as it should. And this is how I plan to address it. 
a lot of people like the concept and they trust me in the space because, you know, luckily I talk a lot about these things at events around the world. So I know the space. I know why we're not moving that fast. This is me putting my money where my mouth is saying, I think we can do better. So obviously, and then on the, well, you know, on the investment side, like I said, I'd love to make a ton of money, but really what I want to prove is that this model can drive a higher success rate. I don't want to invest in 50 companies in the next few years and pray for one unicorn and have the rest of them fail. I think our model is set up so that we can have a much higher success rate because we can find out relatively quickly whether these solutions we invest in um, will succeed or not. So you say you don't want to invest in maybe 50 companies. So how many are you looking to invest in? No, we'll invest in up to 50. But what I want to make sure is that we're not hoping for one out of 50 to be successful. And what I think there is, is an opportunity to drive a higher success rate. So we'll look at probably up to about 15 per year. We're going to have a longer program as well. So we're looking at a six-month program. The rationale behind it is I don't want people in an office for six months. I want them to have time to go out there, deliver pilots and proof of concepts, get referenceable customers before we have the demo day. And you said that you didn't want all the companies to be based in Singapore, but will it be a remote program or will they still have to be in Singapore for the duration of the program? No, no, they can come in for the first week and then for demo day. To be honest with you, like we've already gotten, since we did the press release, I think I've had 50 companies reach out through our website, um, wow. which is just Spark Labs Connects. Hardly any of them are from Singapore. For some reason, we're getting a ton in from South Africa, but I got a lot from Spain because I had actually done an announcement about this at the uh, World Smart Cities event in Barcelona recently. Um, we got a lot from the rest of Europe, got some from Germany, Amsterdam, a bunch from the US, Silicon Valley, and then of course, all of Asia. What I'm imagining is we're going to have a pretty good deal flow on this because Spark Labs, they already have one of the world's best deal flow systems. So we're going to add in, you know, right now we're getting a lot more attention on this space. So I think it should be a pretty exciting time for us. They don't have to be here. I'm going to, we will invest in the best companies globally. And that's our priority. It's like, if they're based here, great. If they're based in Timbuktu, that's fine. As long as they can deliver and take advantage of our ecosystem. I know you said that you're not really necessarily investing in you know, certain ideas, but are there certain types of technology or projects that you'd be more interested in investing in over others? Certain things that will leverage technology enablers. Like the one thing is, okay, there's going to be some real challenges for the mobile operators. They have MBIOT networks right now where nobody except for China is doing anything with them. Hardly any kid out there, there's no use cases for it. 5G is going to create a massive problem because there's so much money involved and no one's got the use cases. But like, I think there's some real opportunities right now with eSIMs, virtual SIMs, and when it moves into integrated SIMs, the iSIMs, that's going to change the world because then you're going to talk about everything can become born connected. And I'll give you an example on this. One of my favorite startups is um, out of Shenzhen. It's called Omate. And they made this brilliant watch a few years ago. And it was an elderly care watch Like went on record saying, I thought it was my favorite launch of the year because they went after the elderly care market in France. So they partnered with a European platform provider called SafeMotion. And they have everything you need in the platform to help the elderly manage their life, which could include like prescriptions, who are your emergency contacts, driving a community around it, you know, all of the basic things. They also partnered with Credit Mutual Arkea, which is a banking and insurance firm there that has 5 million customers. So you have technology supply working together with demand. And then what they did is they launched it as a service, which means one of the big hangups on elderly care is the CapEx involved because you don't want to spend three, 500 bucks on a watch and then you have to buy more of them. So I thought they had everything solved. 
But what I found out was it took them three months to negotiate a mobile contract with SFR. And when they launched in the US, it took them two and a half months. And I was thinking, well, this is horrible. I'm like, why don't you just use an eSIM? Now, by putting an eSIM in their devices, those devices, because they're using the one through Tatacoms and Skyroam, they can turn on in 600 mobile operators worldwide as a local uh, connection, so without roaming, which means as an end user, that thing I've purchased, I flip it on, it comes on, it's working, it's connected. I don't have to have a mobile operator relationship. So I love what you can do with eSIMs. I think it's really going to transform a lot of the use cases around hardware, especially stuff that could be made out of China and now deployed globally. And I like things around elderly care is one of my big areas, personal health care, remote patient diagnostics, that types of solutions. These eSIMs and virtual SIMs are going to really transform that space. I'm not sure if you're allowed to disclose this, but can you share maybe some of the really interesting ideas or companies that have already approached you? I'll say there's a few that have actually really got me really curious. One of them's far too late. Like normally we wouldn't look at investing in a company that's this large already, but they have a really interesting solution, but they want in just for the ecosystem. Because what they realize is that by getting into that ecosystem and getting them into the operators and to the cities, which is their target market, we basically save them a year of biz dev. They keep insisting they're going to find a way to make it work. I can't say it's an analytic solution, which I love, but we'll see how that one goes. On the other side, I'm tracking a few other ones in the prop tech space, but I'm not going to go into them because then somebody else might go after them. So, but um, no, the, on the prop tech ones, a lot of them are more around leveraging analytics as well. And I've got a couple other ones that I'll keep tracking that are more sensor related, but sensors for smart buildings, when they add a unique value and then they can be integrated into other platforms relatively easy. Yeah, but that's, that's some of the ones we're looking at right now. I can't go into the company names, of course. Of course. And I know you've said that you have interest from companies that are based in, for example, Spain and South Africa. Can you maybe shed some light on some of the geographical profiles of the dozens of applications that you have received? And are you more interested in investing in certain companies based in certain countries or regions over others? I think I'll go back to the same one and say, like, we just want to invest in the best companies um, that can leverage the model. But while we have brought together the model and minimized the complexity, it's still very complex. So let's just say I wanted to invest in a company anywhere in the world that does a smart city solution. Well, if they wanted to get involved with some of our test beds or cities we work with, you know, you're talking about we've got them in Spain, so it would need to be in Spanish, uh, France, so it would have to be in French, Mandarin for Taipei, Korean, Japanese, and English. It is, we need companies who actually understand how to be global. So I think we'll always look for companies that can do that because the smart city market is huge and they need to be able to be flexible and support these multiple language requirements. And trust me, I know that's not easy, but I think it is what we would need as companies. They don't have to have them all day one, but we'd like companies that have that capability to actually manage multiple types of environments and multiple languages. So if they come from a not English-speaking country, it could potentially be an advantage. That potentially could be an advantage because most likely they would be branching into other ones. And I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of great companies that um, Spark Labs has invested in that came out of Korea, run by Korean founders who literally learned how to like you know, translate into other languages because they were successful in Korea first. And it can be done. So it's like, um, we're not really worried about that. We would never say no, just because it's in one language only. There's always that chance to roll it out into more as needed. But I think it's, you know, it creates an opportunity for them because let's face it, there's thousands of cities globally. So if you want to go after the market, why only go after one market in one country? 
make sure your platform is flexible enough to support users across multiple countries. Since you've gotten so much interest already, is there anything that you'd like potential applicants to know? Yes, we will keep in contact with you. If you want to get notified when we're going to actually open up the application process, you can register your interest on the sparklabsconnects.com website. So I will be sending out regular comms to them to let them know. Unfortunately, we don't have a start date. We did, but with everything that's going on with uh, the coronavirus right now, I think it would be foolish and naive to say, oh, we're going to start on this date. I think we need to wait and see how the world's going to pan out over the coming weeks and months before we'd actually start that date. So please don't think we're going away. We're just going to get everything ready in the background to make sure that when the world is ready, we are ready. Yeah, I was just going to ask, how is the coronavirus situation impacting the program in any way uh, other than just pushing back the start date? In a way, because we always had this idea that you know we wanted people working more remotely. And I obviously, have, I want more money to invest in the companies instead of you know, spending it on OPEX. So I like light models. I like people to be able to work uh, virtually. If anything, it's really letting us test that out and people are going to become a lot more used to it. So in a way, that's really going to benefit us, which I think is great. But beyond that, I mean, we all understand that this is a, a bad period. There is going to be some serious issues with governments and company finances going forward. So I think a lot of the solutions we're going to be looking at to bring to the program I'll look at companies that can do things around things like cost reduction and driving efficiencies, because that's what it's going to be based on now. It's going to be a really business decision based for the end customers. So I'd also recommend anybody, whether you come to us or go anywhere else, make sure you've got a good ROI story because it is going to be much harder going forward to just sort of say, oh, we might be able to save you money or might be able to be a revenue generator. They're going to be signing off on things that they know can save them money because everybody that I talk to right now is under significant financial pressure. Yeah, I understand that. Like you said, it's it's not uh, the best times right now. But do you potentially see any opportunities in the sectors that you're looking at, like IoT, smart cities, prop tech, opportunities that have arised because of the coronavirus situation, perhaps? I, there's a couple of companies, and it's, it's not startup related, but there's a couple of interesting solutions I've seen to help people address this. One of them is from a company called Vault Intelligence out of ANZ. They're actually coming into Asia now. They've got this really interesting uh, safety and compliance platform. And they've got this ridiculous number of something like 1 million users across Australia and New Zealand. And there's only 28 million people in the country. So it's, it's not across like just mobile. It could be across a laptop. But it's about tracking user behavior and users for safety and compliance. They've adapted it now where they can actually do it to help monitor your employees with regards to coronavirus. And especially if you have policies about 14 days self-regulation, it's a really interesting concept about how people are adapting their existing solutions to help governments or companies monitor their citizens or monitor their employees to make sure they remain safe and minimize the risk to everybody else. That's probably my favorite one I saw so far about this. But I think there's going to be a lot of other opportunities, like I said, about cost reduction. We are going to see a downturn in the economy. Companies, customers, whether it's a city, vendors, everybody else is going to have massive cost pressures. So those companies that can actually identify ways to save you money. That's why I like a lot of the analytics solutions. It's very low CapEx. Most of it's OpEx. And if you can basically show them, I can take your data, give you intelligence to save money. Those are going to be easy sells going forward. So I think that's a real opportunity for them. And something like 5G 5G is going to take a long time anyway. If anything, this gives us time to get the next release out. So I think the next release is one that it will enable massive IoT. 
we need time to get that process going anyway. So it gives us time to identify these news cases. And probably like the, the biggest thing is I'm still a firm believer that IoT is going to be needing and smart city solutions. There's too much fragmentation. It is going to be tough on the industry. I think you'll see some consolidation. I think some companies might not be able to survive because it could be very tough times for the coming six to 12 months. But that means that the people who actually are do have solid business models and are generating money they'll remain and then it becomes easier because right now there's so much noise. Any solution you look at, there's dozens of different options. And I, I think I'm the only person in IoT who doesn't have his own platform. I think there's like something like 700 platforms out there now. So it is very fragmented. Maybe this will drive a bit of consolidation in the industry. So it's easier for the demand side to understand who they should be talking to. It is a really difficult time, like you mentioned, right now around the world. And is there anything that you'd like to recommend for everybody that has inspired you recently? Actually, I had a tea with um, a guy named Prag Khanna the other day. He's an author, um, but he also runs a company called Future Maps. And they do some great data visualization and they do some incredible analysis around cities. And he's got a book called The Future is Asian. And I'll be honest with you, it's been recommended to me a few times. I've had it for three months. I, but I actually told him, like, listen, I've, I've had your book. I just haven't had time to read it. What I'm hoping is with all this working from home, I will have time to read it now. But I went through and started looking through some of the maps and data visualization they do. And it's pretty fascinating. It's a great way to convey a message. So that would be my one recommendation. I must say, and this is definitely unplanned, but we have interviewed him on our show and uh, it was a great pleasure editing that episode. I actually learned a lot from that interview we had with Craig. <laughs> He's a great guy. Actually, we met him with his wife as well and she's equally impressive. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, and how can I, my audience find you? I think right now I have far too many social media profiles to go through them all. <laughs> If you want to find out more information about Spark Labs Connects, just go to the website, sparklabsconnects.com, or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, which is just Charles Reed Anderson, the only one with that name, I believe. If you want to follow me on Twitter, CRA Singapore, I think that's good enough for now because literally on my Buffer account, I think I've got 11 different social media profiles I'm managing. So we'll just leave it there. That's the best way. I understand that pain. And if you want to reach out to Analyze Asia, you can find us on Twitter at Analyze Asia. That is Analyze with an S. And if you want to hear more episodes, for example, the interview with the author of the book, The Future is Asian, you can also find us on all podcasting platforms like iTunes Podcast, Himalaya, Spotify, etc. Now, thank you so much, Charles, for coming on to the show again. And I'm sure we're going to be speaking sometime soon in the future. That sounds very good. Thanks a lot for having me.